Welcome to Indie Reads Aloud, a storytelling podcast with your host, Diana Catherine Plopa. Come gather round, grab a snack, and listen to a story. Each week, we'll feature a new indie author with a story to tell. There are no long-winded interviews, no sales pitches, just stories. Most of the stories we'll tell will be family-friendly, but if they're not, you'll get fair warning before the reading begins. If you want to hear more, investigate the story notes for links to the author and where to buy their books. You can find us at dkpwriter.com. And now, sit back, relax, and listen to a story. Welcome, everybody. I love, love, love having this author on the program. We have so much fun together. His books are so exciting. And I know I'm jumping ahead of myself, but tonight, today, whenever you happen to be listening to this, you're going to love this episode. Mark Love is back again to share another one of his extraordinary mystery novels with us. Mark, welcome back. Thank you, Diana. I always have so much fun with you in the program. You always surprise me with the pieces you pull out of your books, and it's terrific fun. I, I think that's part of my plan. Every time you and I get ready to do one of these things, I thought, hmm, what can I do to catch Diana off guard? <laughs> and you succeed every single time. <laughs> uh, you've done five of these now, right? That's, that's right, yes. So you just, that's the deal I made with you. You keep writing books, and I'll keep having you back on the program. I'm going to hold you to that. I've got a couple no more that have already been done, and I'm working on another one, and I may dust off an oldie but a goodie and see what I can get there. Excellent. Spectacular. Before we go any further, just so that I don't forget, to, on today's episode, there is a listener advisory for some strong language. So if anybody out there has little ears listening to the podcast, you might want to preview this podcast first before you share it with the little people in your world. Um, Mark has been on the program so many times, I feel like I, I should have his bio memorized by now, but I don't. So I'm going to read it for you. The reason I don't is because of all the titles he's written. There, there's no possible way I can remember them all. But let me tell you, Mark Love, that's his real name, by the way. Real like, like it's on his birth certificate. I checked. <laughs> Mark Lim lived for many years in the metropolitan Detroit area where crime and corruption are always prevalent. As a former freelance reporter, Mark honed his writing skills uh, covering features and hard news. He is the author of the Jamie Richmond romance mysteries, Devious, Vanishing Act, and Fleeing Beauty, and the novella Stealing Haven. The short story, Don't Mess With the Gods, was written with Ellie Nina Kessel and was included in the Magic and Mischief Anthology. I've got that one on my TBR coming up next. Good, good. Uh, Mark also wrote the Jefferson, Jefferson Chain Mystery Series, including Y319, the latest Shane novel, Wayward Path, as well as the latest Jamie Richmond novel, Chasing Favors, 
Mark now resides in West Michigan, where he enjoys a wide variety of music and books and travel and cooking in the great outdoors and he has grandchildren and he has a lovely wife and just a very full life and he shares his writing expertise with anybody who asks and we are all very grateful. So thanks for coming back. Oh, it's my pleasure. We always have so much fun when we get together. It's just like two kids loose in a candy store it, it, or a it's, library. It, it, no. Yes, um, except in a library on storytelling day where you don't have to whisper. I'll, I'll <laughs> take that one. Yeah. So tonight, in today's episode, you're going to read Your Turn to Die, which is Jefferson Chain mystery novel how there's the cover um where does this book fit in the chronology of the chain mysteries this is the second chain mystery of the three so far um, and it picks up really just a couple months after y319 ends and so it's primarily the same main cast of characters that are involved and uh, this one's a little, lots of suspects. So without giving away too much, what's the biggest obstacle Shane has to overcome on this one? Well, in this one, the homicide that they're investigating takes place at a war games, a paintball game. And there were over a hundred suspects, a hundred people that were participating in that game so they all become suspects, but they also have the fellow's business that they have to look into along with his personal relationships and all of his other activities. So, so there's a lot of loose ends he has to figure it out. It is. And, Lots and, of pieces. And everything starts to get a little bit crazy, crazier than normal. And it also is the first appearance of two retired mobsters that have sort of an interest in this investigation. And they okay. also have a little unusual relationship with Shane, a, a strange little friendship. And that's, these two guys pop into this book as well. And uh, I really got some great responses from readers when they saw that they love this Leo agonist. <laughs> he is just a real piece of work. Really I'm good. looking forward to having you share it with our listeners. I, I always love your storytelling. It, it's, it's pure joy for me to have you read. So when you are ready, please take the microphone and read aloud. All right. Thank you, Diana. Uh, I'm going to do something a little different for you. I'm going to start with the prologue on this one. No, well, not this, the prologue. This, this one kind of sets the stage for the investigation and gets you going. Okay. Here we go. It didn't look like the kind of morning for murder. The mist burning off with the sun revealed a gregarious crowd, struggling for some semblance of order. Green and brown camouflage fatigues, plastic goggles and leather boots adorned many of the participants. Some were clothed in sneakers, jeans, and sweatshirts, mostly black or dark. Others wore heavy plastic helmets that covered the face. From a distance, it looked like a raiding party from Selfridge Air National Guard Base. Up close was another story. These were not the lean, mean physiques of true military men and women, but the various shapes of weekend warriors seeking a little fun in games. 
Much of the clothing was worn and mismatched, probably from an army surplus supplier. The group was quickly separated into four divisions designated by colored armbands. An elaborate version of capture the flag of him. But one participant was after much higher stakes. The sun was quickly warming the area when the target was spotted. It took the hunter a while since he didn't want to get too close and risk being recognized. Surprise was going to be a major part of this game. As luck would have it, he was part of the black team. The plan was to defend against blue and attack yellow. But this target was on the red squad. As the players dispersed, he drifted towards the tree, keeping his quarry in sight. With patience, the target would be eliminated before noon. This was the first of four rounds scheduled for today. According to the rules of engagement, if a paint pellet struck you, you were eliminated from that series. Those hit were instructed to head back to the neutral area where cases of beer, soft drinks, and bottled water were already chilling under ice. Deli platters would be offered between the second and third rounds of play. After the final round, the grills would be fired up and a feast would be served. Since each squad used the paint colors to match their armbands, an inept soldier could be splattered like a rainbow. During the initial round, he kept to the sidelines, trying to elude any potential attackers and maintain visual contact. With less than 20 minutes remaining in the game, a warrior from the blue team sprang from a low tree limb and nailed him with a short shot to the stomach. Instinctively, he flinched and clutched his gut. After a moment, he smiled, then wiped the smear of paint on his fatigues and headed for the neutral zone. He had lost sight of his quarry, but was unconcerned. Patience would be its own reward. If he struck too soon, the target would be discovered before he could make his escape. That was not part of his plan. At the neutral zone, he pulled the Verners from the ice, then leaned against the picnic table. On the far side of the area, he spotted his man, a large blotch of yellow paint adorning his neck and right shoulder. His eyes never left the target. The man was slumped on the ground, breathing heavily, with his back braced against the tree. Sweat beaded his face. He pulled off his hat, wiping it against his face. Camouflage shirt and pants were also dark with sweat, which seemed odd since the temperatures were in the low 70s. A whistle sounded repeatedly, signaling the end of the first round. The rest of the players straggled in and received their assignments for game two. Some switched to other teams, but many remained where they were. After all, it was the game, not the enemy he faced. Counted. This time, the target was going to be engaged. Black was to defend against yellow and attack red. That was precisely what he had in mind. As the battle began, he slipped over to a cluster of willow trees, adjusted his equipment, and made his way slowly through the low-hanging branches. 
The game went on around him. His eyes remained narrowed and focused. Nostrils flaring, he was searching for the scent of his prey. His ears were attuned to the slightest clue of his target. He checked each area cautiously before moving in. There, he was just up ahead on the left. The man was making this too easy. He had isolated himself from the group. Now he had straddled a fallen log and was holding his head in his hands. The hunter gently lowered the bulky paintball gun to the ground. From one of the cargo pockets of his pants, he removed a revolver. From another, he pulled out a long metal tube. Deftly, he fastened it to the muzzle of the gun. Then he moved closer, still cautiously checking his surroundings before taking even a single step. He was less than 10 feet away when the target looked up. Away. I don't want to play today. This game's for real. He brought the gun up and extended it towards his quarry. What kind of paint gun is that? I don't play with paint, Morrissey. I use the thing. Morrissey raised the goggles from his face and squinted at the hunter in the sun-dappled shadows. Recognition finally registered. What the hell are you doing? Taking care of business. Okay, shoot me and get it over with. I feel like shit anyway. Where are the jewels? The man squinted in an effort to focus. What are you talking about? I want the jewels. Diamonds, rubies, and emeralds. Tell me. Tell me. He moved close and pointed the gun just below the target's belt top. I want the jewel. You owe me that much and more. Morrissey shook his head. Go to hell. You first. He pulled the trigger. There was a soft coughing sound as the gun fired. As a precaution, he dropped to his knees and clamped a hand over Morrissey's mouth to stifle any noise. Morrissey struggled, clutching at his groin. Diamonds and rubies and emeralds. Tell me now, and I'll end this quick. Morrissey continued to moan beneath his gloved hand. He knew the chances of getting the information from the wounded man were slim, but it was worth a try. He shifted the gun to the right side of Morrissey's chest and fired again. Morrissey jumped as the bullet slammed into him. Crimson spray coated his shirt. The shooter glanced around, making sure no one else had entered the shelter of the tree. He doubted the jewels even existed. They were secondary to everything else. He rocked back on his heels and got to his feet. Morrissey was gasping now, blood forming little bubbles on his lips. He lowered the gun until it was close to the dying man's forehead. Steadying his hand, he squeezed the trigger one last time. Morrissey was gone. He picked up Morrissey's paintball gun and fired a red pellet at his own leg. The killer jumped in surprise at the pain of the impact at such the paint was a brighter shade than the stain spreading on the ground below the body. Satisfied, 
turned away and walked out of the willows towards the neutral zone. Game over. The second scene I'm going to share with you is Shane and his crew are in the middle of investigating a case. This has been about four or five days now. And he stops by Morrissey's office and he encounters Valerie Mann, the office. The mood in the office was subdued. Valerie Mann was expecting me. Without delay, she steered me to her office. I noticed that Colleen's office was dark. Valerie's expression was stern. She pointed me toward a visitor's chair as she took her seat behind a desk. Things are a little stressful. What do you need? I was hoping to speak with Mrs. Morrissey. She's making the final arrangements for tomorrow's funeral. I don't expect her to be in the office again until next Monday. Which is why I was hoping you can fill in some blanks for me. Valerie laced her fingers as if she wanted me to admire her manicure. It still looked as polished as it had on Monday when we first met. I waited while she drew a breath and let it out slowly. I know you have a job to do. It's just a very difficult time for all of us. I understand. Are there any concerns about the business continuing? Why no? Colleen has assured us that we will maintain operations just as Kyle would have wanted. Each unit is profitable, although some more so than others. I doubt she would consider selling. I wasn't convinced. Are there potential buyers for the business? There have been a few overtures the last couple of years, but nothing Kyle took seriously. The movies and the bookstores are like his children. He'd never sell. I met with the company's lawyers earlier. Do you know if Kyle and Colleen have a personal attorney? She hesitated. I watched her eyes flick away. Here it comes. I'm sure they must, but I have no idea who that might be. It's a bad idea to lie to a cop. Sooner or later, the truth comes back to bite you in the ass. Her body jolted as if I'd slapped her. There may be something in Kyle's contact list. He didn't keep business cards. When someone gave him one, he put the details on the computer. And you have access to that file? Yes, it's on the network. Let's take a look. I could have had the cyber unit scan the files, but there was a chance she'd give me more than just a name and a number. Valerie turned to the computer and pulled the chair closer to the desk as I came around beside her. Why did you lie to me? She shifted her head just enough to look me in the eye. I don't like you. It's not a popularity contest. I'm trying to figure out who killed your boss. You're abrasive. I shrugged. I have to be. Your mother must be so proud. Her voice was dripping with sarcasm. I wouldn't know. I never met her. Valerie opened her mouth to say something, but no words came out. Her cheeks and throat flushed scarlet. She swallowed once and turned her attention to the computer. I watched as she scrolled through a list of files and brought up a folder labeled Contacts. 
So there must be some other reason you lied other than not liking him. I just don't see how any of this could help you find his killer. I pointed at the computer monitor. Slowly, she ran through the list of names. Valerie stopped occasionally to jot down the details for several people listed as attorneys. It was tempting to see if there were any recent emails between them and Morrissey. I was about to ask, but figured the cyber unit would be able to tell me. We finished with the list. Valerie switched off the computer. Want to tell me about the lie? She let out a ragged breath. You're impossible. I rested a hip on her desk. She remained in the big chair. Self-consciously, she crossed her legs, then tugged the hem of her skirt down towards her knee. It didn't cover much. I'm in no hurry. I thought you were trying to catch a killer. I am, but my boss gets pissed if I do a sloppy job and miss something. Valerie folded her hands in her lap. I have nothing more to say. Unless you have questions related to Mr. Morrissey's business dealings, I'm going to ask you to leave. We have a number of things to finish up before tomorrow's services. I decided not to push it. She was obviously holding something here. Whether it was pertinent to the case was anyone's guess. Tucking the papers in my pocket, I pushed away from the desk. Valerie stayed in her chair. Goodbye, Sergeant. I'll see you around, Miss Man. Obviously not the response she was looking for. All right, scene three. Shane has finished working on the investigation for the day. He's going to meet Simone, the beautiful young woman that he's been seeing for the last few months. Time for a date. Simone was waiting when I got home. She met me in the kitchen, glass of wine in her hand. The sun was still out, blasting down with a high intensity on the world. It had been like this all day. And I had an escape in mind. You look tired. Step close for a kiss. You look fantastic. It was true. She wore a sleeveless cream-colored top and a pair of navy shorts. Her hair was swept back. Large sunglasses were perched on the crown of her head. You're very sweet. How is the case going? It's a mess. I've got more suspects than I know what to do with. But let's forget about that for a while. Her eyes sparkled. What did you have in mind? Dinner and a surprise, although not necessarily in that order. Simone grabbed her purse from the counter. I like surprises. Good to know. As I locked the house, she turned toward the street. Only when she realized I wasn't following did she look back. You like staring at my ass? Absolutely. I have a beautiful ass. Probably the nicest one I've ever seen. Probably. The laughter was building in my chest. Well, it's the best one I've ever seen naked. Does that help? He flashed a brilliant smile. It does. She started to turn back towards the street. You're heading the wrong way. 
I jerked a thumb over my shoulder. Puzzled, she walked back to me. Only now did she see the boat tied up at the dock. She stood by the edge of the garage as I removed the canvas cover and stowed it below deck. Where did this yacht come from? I fired up the blower to clear the engine compartment of fumes and began to untie the stern. This is a boat. It's not big enough to be considered a yacht. I dropped the line on the deck and held out my hand. Reluctantly, she took it and made the step from dry land. I heed the engine and let it warm up. In a minute, I'd removed the bow and spring lines from the dock and was ready to go. Simone was still standing in the center of the deck, looking uncertain. You didn't answer my question. I guided her over to the large seat behind the controls on the starboard side. As I put the craft in gear and idled toward the lake, I told her about Ted's favor. Simone knew a little about the old saloon keeper and our relationship. When I reached the lake, I pointed at a button on the dash. Press that and count to three. Grinning like a schoolgirl, Simone thumbed the horn. She settled back on the comfortable seat, pulled her sunglasses on, and shook out her hair. Let's see what this baby can do. Yes, ma'am. I gave it some throttle and headed out across the lake. How did you learn to drive a boat? Simone's voice had a trace of awe. She knew about my background, being abandoned at birth and raised in an orphanage by Catholic nuns. That didn't sound like the beginning of a life on the water. I was tempted to shrug it off, but knew she wouldn't let it go. The summer I was 14, I had my days free. As long as I was back to the orphanage in time for dinner, they trusted me to behave. Mostly they thought I just walked to the library every day. I like books. What I was really doing was sneaking into restaurants, doing the dine and dash like a wily crew. Dine and dash? What in the world is that? I shook my head in mock dismay. Clearly you've led a sheltered life. Dine and dash is when you sneak out of the restaurant without paying the bill. It's quite daring for a teenager. You didn't. I did, and more than once, too. I was getting pretty good at it. Anyway, I rode the bus out to the nautical mile in St. Clair Shores. Boats, interesting. I just walked up and down the docks, looking at all these beautiful rigs. One day, I ducked into Sharky's for lunch. As I was skipping out, Ted caught me. You're kidding. Nope. He gave me the choice of paying up or working it off. So I scrubbed dishes for a couple of hours and he called it even. When I came back, he gave me a job. Her eyes dazzling with delight, Simone shook her head. That doesn't explain how you learned about boats. The more I hung out at the bar, the more Ted trusted me. One afternoon, he borrowed a friend's cabin cruiser, took me for a ride on the lake. Along the way, he showed me how to operate it. He taught me the rules of the water, how to approach other boats, and who had the right of way. Pretty soon, we were going out on the lake once a week or more. Eventually, I grew comfortable on the water, 
even when the weather was rough. So your life of crime ended up being a good thing. Are there any more nefarious tales I should know about? Define nefarious. Let's call it wicked or slightly illegal behavior. I paused. Just being out on the water with her on this summer's night was enjoyable. I cut the throttles, slowing the boat as we glided back in the general direction of the house. The breeze ruffled her hair. Simone closed her eyes and tilted her head back, drinking in the fresh air. Well, it wasn't illegal, but it could have been slightly wicked. She turned and bumped the shoulder against my chest. Tell me. Understand that the statute of limitations has long passed. You just said it wasn't illegal. It wasn't. Simone reached past me and pulled the throttle back, slowing the boat even more. Tell me. So I did. I was 16 when it happened. One of the benefactors for the orphanage took all the nuns out to his cottage at the end of the school year for a day's picnic. There were a handful of kids from the orphanage who were brought along as well. That year it was cold, rainy, just a miserable day. Everyone was crowded inside. The nuns were in their full black and white habits, the kids in jeans and t-shirts. There was one nun, a real task nun. Her name was Sister Columbus. She was a small but tough person, probably the toughest I've ever known. Simone nodded and made a get on with it gesture. Turns out this benefactor had a couple of boats Sister Columbus had a brief chat, then came over and thumped me on the arm. Let's go for a boat. It's raining out, sister. God doesn't mind a little rain, Jefferson, and neither do I. Our friend says you can drive that little speedboat. When I looked beyond her, there stood the benefactor, nodding his approval. I recognized him from Sharky's. Apparently, he'd seen me there and out on the lake with Ted. Five minutes later, we were outfitted with windbreakers and life jackets. The little speedboat turned out to be a 10-foot-long hydroplane with a fiberglass hull and a 50-horsepower outboard motor. The benefactor gave me a 60-second lesson in the controls, cast off the lines, and threw me a salute. I motored out away from the dock as we hit the open channel, a large yacht board path. I paused in telling my story and turned the boat away from the shore and headed south on the lake toward the gross points. Simone rocked against me as I nudged the throttles for more speed. You'd better keep talking, Shane. You expect any romance tonight. She unsuccessfully tried to say this with a straight up ahead, another boat raced towards us. I shifted, letting him pass about 20 feet off the port bow. As it went by, I guided the speedboat gently through the other vessel's wake, rocking back and forth. Simone turned, leaned her hip against my leg. I dropped one hand from the wheel and wrapped it around her waist, drawing her even closer. 
the waves we just went through is a boat's weight. Depending on the size of the boat and the speed, they can be quite large. It's usually a series of six waves, three on each side. An experienced sailor knows the proper way to take them, easing his craft over the rolling water. She nodded in understanding. The hint of a smile was in her eyes, tugging at the corners of her mouth. She said nothing. So I knew the right way to cross that yacht's wake. Instead, I jammed the throttle open and raced that hydroplane over the first roller, through the middle of the second wave, and then over the third one, fast enough to make us airborne. An incredulous look crossed Simone's face. You didn't. I did. Sister Columbus was screaming bloody murder as a hundred gallons of water flooded the cockpit where we sat. As we crashed back onto the surface, I did the same thing on the other side, racing over the first wave, through the second, and getting airborne on the third. I gave the wheel a spin and headed further away from her. She must have been furious. What happened? I shrugged. The last thing I expected. As we came through the final wave, she jabbed me with an elbow. I figured this was when I would be doomed to hell, no matter what else I did with my life. What did she say? Sister Columbus merely pointed at the stern of that yacht and yelled three words I will never forget. What did she say, Simone repeated. Do it again. The feisty little nun was having the ride of her life. At her urging, we chased that yacht for about a mile, jumping through its wake from one side to the other. Eventually, we turned around and headed back to the benefactor's place. When we pulled into the dock, he was standing there waiting to secure the boat. He guided Sister Columbus back to the house, where several nuns helped her out of her sodden habit and into the heavy world. A towel became an improvised turban. The benefactor found a sweatshirt and an old pair of jeans for me. All the clothes got tossed in the dryer. So she wasn't mad? Nope. It was the most fun she'd ever had. Later on at dinner, she sat across the table from me, still wearing this goofy turban. I got a big smile and a wink from her. I can't believe you really tried to drown a nun. It was nefarious. Oh my gosh, that was so great. <laughs> so um, I really enjoyed this book. This is really fun. Um, why it was so much fun for me is because I'm from a family of boaters and sailors. My younger brother used to race hydroplanes. So this was, this was a lot of fun for me. <laughs> I must admit that that scene is true. Really? I actually, I actually tried to do that with a nun. I went to Catholic schools. With, with a nun? Uh, you took with a, a nun. <laughs> I did indeed. I tried to drown that nun. And I still have the claw marks in my forearm where her nails <laughs> were digging into me. Um, that was hysterical. absolutely true. And that was her do it again was her response and the smile on her face. And we were <laughs> drenched between the rain and the water coming in the boat. 
it was I I had wrinkles everywhere for like a week. Yeah. It was just hilarious. And and all the other nuns were just looking at her and looking at me when we got back inside and there and none of them turned towards me. <laughs> I'm just like I was done with elementary school, grade school. I was high school. So they have to see him with any frequency. So what fun. Oh my gosh. Okay, so now that I know that about you, I have to ask how many more little hidden autobiographical gems lay inside your novels? Oh, there are <laughs> um, a number of them. Some of them were from me. Some of them were scenes from my kids. Uh, in one of the Jamie books, um, there's, a, there's a line where she's talking with Bert. I think it's in Devious, where she's talking with Bert, and that's her stepfather, and she plays the line, I'll be your valentine. And that was something when she's trying to get what she wants out of him, you know? Sure. And that's something my kids used to do. I'll be your Valentine if we can go to the movies. I'll, you know, I'll be your Valentine. <laughs> you know, it just it just fits so well with that. Thing, so much know? fun. Oh, my oh, yeah. gosh. I... And it just, there are some scenes in different books that come from real life. And I just, you, you have to have those kind of moments. They can be inspiring for what you do. And it just is Absolutely. so much well, you know, I, I talked to a lot of authors. We've done over 100 episodes of this podcast now. And, Congratulations. And you know, thank you. And as you know, you and I follow in the same author circles, and we have some that intersect at, at various points. And over and over again, I hear the phrase, well, you have to write what you know, except we also well, make things up for a living so we start with what we know and then we make up from there <laughs> yeah exactly right and you know when i was working on this particular book i was trying to think of a scene where shane because this is very early in their relationship with simone you know he's she's trying to get to know him a little bit better and mm -hmm. and you know there's they're still cautiously approaching you know this this relationship and so I was trying to think of something. I said, I, there's got to be something off the wall that Shane can do. There's got to be something. And I don't know, it just clicked. And I went, oh my gosh, this well, is going to be perfect. It's a hysterical scene. I absolutely love the visual that you paint of a wet nun is just hysterical to me. The other thing that I like about this is that it really does show a nice um, human side to Shane. Yeah. um that that is different from his workaday detective guy that he always is yeah he's always normally he's very focused on the case that he's working on he's very gruff he yeah he, he may throw a few zingers with some of his crew back and forth but primarily they're focused on you know trying to solve the crime and yeah, yeah. he's not a ladies man he's never been one that's had a lot of girlfriends or anything like this so this is really new territory for him this is this was really fun for me because and i you've been a michigan guy for a long time so you probably know mcgruff the crime dog oh yeah of course so when when i think of shane that's kind of who i picture in my head <laughs> and so to to meld that image of McGruff the crime dog with a wet nun for me is just hysterical. 
Well, I have Again, to tell you, as an as an my imagination goes in weird places. Yeah, I, I was watching your expression when I'm reading this, and you're you're just priceless. It and I have to tell you, when my kid's sister read this particular book, she sent me a note. I remember that clearly. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised they're not pictures somewhere. There probably are for black <laughs> What fun. Oh Mark, I am so grateful to have you back on the program again. It's Please just keep coming back pleasure. and reading to me, even if it means coming back and reading different scenes from books you've already read from. Okay, <laughs> I might do that. You know? It's so much fun to have you on the program. Uh, I appreciate you. Really Thank appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much, Diana. Have a great evening. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to Indie Reads Aloud Radio. We hope you'll join us again next week for another story. If you're an indie author and you'd like to share your story with us, visit our website at dkpwriter.com to sign up and read aloud.